Osiris. Episode 122 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands. We know we've kind of deviated from that as of late. However, we love Fish. We are Fish fans. They just came off of a very good, very solid summer tour. Not didn't like it quite as much as summer 2020, but still very, very good. Very excited for the fall tour. We love fish. Sometimes the problem with fish fans is they get a bit myopic, which is to say they only focus on fish to the expense of all of the other great music out there in the universe. And we're always trying to do something about that. We are. We have been and we continue to. I am uh, currently in the midst of... A no jam band two week stretch here where I'm going through all the new albums that I missed while Fish was on their summer tour, re-listening to my favorite albums so far of the year and reorganizing and rejiggering that list. It's the most scientific approach I've taken to my top albums list ever, and it's going to be the best list in the entire universe at the end of 2023. We'll be there soon enough, guys. Still time to enjoy the 2023 music. But you're absolutely right. Our goal, our mission, our manifesto has been you can listen to fish. You can be obsessed with fish. You can listen to lots of fish. But, 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 but you got to listen to a little bit of other music or a lot bit of other music to shape yourself into the renaissance man that you want to be. And we know that you can be. And in today's episode, we are taking a step back in fish history. We're not talking about summer tour yet. We're going to do that at a later date, probably as we talk about this upcoming Dick's Run, the SPAC shows, the fall tour. We'll do like a big reset of what all happened. We are taking a step back 30 years ago and honoring what maybe probably is one of the most important months in fish history. I want to just step back from my hyperbole a little bit here. One of the most important months in fish history, August, 1993. We're going to talk about this month. We're going to highlight two jams that we feel really embody the year and really showcase where the band was at. And then we're going to spin it off and we are going to talk about two bands, one at their 10 year mark and what the, their August 93 moment might look like. And another that has been around quite a bit longer and what their August 93 moments have been and how they've sustained and how they've utilized creativity. So we're really, really excited about this episode. Two of our favorite bands, including fish. It's going to be awesome stuff here today. I, uh, happened to be on the iPhone note that Brian is using for, uh, his best albums of the year. And I get an iPhone notification every time he makes a change to it. And I can tell you there's about 17 of those a day in which it occurs. So there's lots of changes. I look down on my phone, think of someone trying to hit me up a Mastodon. Nope, it's just Brian. 
hitting me, uh, you know. Just copy and drop and move around and readjusting. It's, it's very, very scientific. So some of the themes that we're going to talk about in this episode include the most critical shift in fish's career. Why evolution is essential to fish? And can August 1993 be replicated with other bands? But before I can say let's get to the fish, we've been promising you a mailbag. We have a mailbag this time around. People have emailed us. They have sent us questions. And we are going to read and answer some of these questions. If you want to be part of this uh, luminous group of emails, hit us up. It's uh, one big word, beyond the pond podcast at gmail.com. We do read them. So uh, we have three mailbags today, actually. So I'm going to kick it off. The first mailbag question is from uh, one of our good friends, actually, a longtime fan, Justin Bruce, your uh, friendly, fishy neighborhood weatherman out in uh, Las Vegas. So the question is, gentlemen, I recently stumbled upon a Dave Brubeck Take 5 cover from String Cheese Incident's Carnival 99 album, which was new to me. String Cheese Incident was a not insignificant part of my jam band listing in the late 90s and early 2000s, namely the two albums from 1998, Round the Wheel and, and A String Cheese Incident. Of course, Round the Wheel being the one that has the song, Spinning Round the Wheel of Light. My String Cheese days petered out quickly in the mid-2000s, Next time I thought about them was in 2017 when the journal made headlines for ignorant social media comments about Jewish people controlling the world's banking industry. Yes, that was the thing that happened. My God. I had already left them for dead, and that was the final nail in the coffin. Every once in a while, I get the urge to luxuriate in that late 90s OG Jangrass musical space in spite of myself. My question to you, gents, is what is your guiltiest musical pleasure? A band from who you've moved on so completely for a long time, who's totally disconnected from your present existence, but every once in a great while, you feel compelled to scratch the itch. That's a great question. This is a super music nerdery question, I feel like, because a lot of people listen to music in middle school and high school, and then they move on, and then they're just done, and they never have a desire to go back. It's just that was the music you listened to in high school. But I feel like for us... I'm always thinking about who I was in middle school and high school because I cared about music the same way that I care about it now. I just admittedly was not into as, uh, how do I put it? As high quality of music as I am now. You know, I, I don't want to be insulting because there's probably a 38 year old out there who listens to the band I'm about to say, and they're totally a good person, probably a good dad, probably keep down a good job, probably pay their taxes on time, you know, all that good and... stuff. But like, for me, this is a guilty pleasure because I moved on from this genre. And that is the band Everclear uh, from Santa Monica, Portland, Oregon, Art Alexakis. When I was 12 years old, the album So Much for the Afterglow, the song Santa Monica, which came from their previous record, these were some of the most important musical chestnuts to me. I listened to So Much of the for the Afterglow probably on a daily basis through the spring of 1998, which was uh, coincidentally the time that Fish was playing the Island Tour, which was um, not in any way near where my headspace or my emotions were musically at that point in time. But to me, this record, I've gone back and I've re-listened to it in recent months. It still flows really well. Like subject matter wise, it kind of is very surface level to 
family trauma, drug abuse, challenges of growing up in uh, kind of white working class America in the 80s and 90s. It doesn't really resonate in the same way if like I was going to tap into those subjects now. But I definitely hear the hooks. I hear the production that I really like, the risks that they took on that record. And I listen back to it every so often and think this is one of those albums that even though stylistically, quality-wise, it has not held up for me in the same way that, I don't know, I was really into Pearl Jam's Yield in spring of 98 as well. That's held up for me immensely. This has not held up for me, but I still go back to it and hear it and hear where like the moments were where, where you know, young middle school Brian Brinkman realized why flow was so important in a record, why confessional songwriting was so important in a record, why kind of distorted, weird soundscapes were really important in a record. So I still will ride for this, even though I can't in any, you know, logical sense, call myself an Everclear fan in the year 2023. What do you got, Dave? I kind of like the singles off the Everclear album before so much for the Afterglow. Is that Sparkle and Fade? Sparkle and Fade, you're right. Santa Monica was like the big single Santa Monica? Off yeah, that's a great song. It was the first single was Heroin Girl. Yep. I knew this girl. She had two pierced dipples and a black tattoo. Yeah. Everclear. Okay. Um, my answer to this question, at first I was going to say live because I usually say live, throwing copper, and people ask me this question, but I decided to go a bit deeper and talk about a band that I actually enjoyed in college. This is like my junior, senior year of college. This is when I was probably old enough to almost know better. And that is a, a, a British rock band called Placebo. So... I guess their heyday, if you could call it that, would be the late 90s. They were uh, consisted of the frontman Brian Molko and the bass player Stefan Oldsdahl, and they've cycled through a whole bunch of drummers, I think. But there's basically only two actual actual members of uh, a placebo at this point. But Brian Molko was uh, kind of like gothy think he was fancied himself bisexual, goth, lots of eyeliner, kind of a nasal, whiny voice like this, and it's pretty garden variety, late 90s alternative rock. For some reason, I thought it was like transgressive and kind of eerie, and I don't know. I mean, the big placebo hit was in the head out of the song Pure Morning. Yeah. Maybe that's the one you know. Oh, yeah. A friend in needs, a friend indeed. A friend with weed is better. You know, kind of silly rhyme schemes. Uh, what they had a song in the soundtrack to Cruel Intentions, I think Every You, Every Me. Both that song and Pure Morning are off of uh, the album Without You, I'm Nothing, which is the best placebo album by far and away, kind of faint praise. But the one I first listened to was the one after that, Black Market Music, which I thought was a pretty cool name for a record. And they had a song that sampled like a pavement B-side. I'm like, yeah, this is where my head is at. This like got the British alternative rock band with songs about sex and violence and drugs. And then I went and saw them with a buddy. I think I saw them 
more so because the opening act was the band Idlewild, whose uh, 1999 album, A Thousand Broken Windows, is still goes so hard. That's one of the great lost albums of the late 90s. They were opening for Placebo, so I figured I would kill two birds at one stone. And I went with a friend who hadn't heard either band, and Placebo has a song, I think it's on black market music, called Scared of Girls, that has a rhyme scheme that goes like, her baby sister had a blister where I kissed her on her thigh. And after that lyric, my friend turned to me and gave me a look like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> and so I looked at the stage, and I kind of like, yes, do I... Do I enjoy this band or are they just kind of stupid? And ever since then, I didn't wasn't as big a fan of like Placebo. And to their credit, they put out a lot of records. They had a pretty big following. They did a pretty popular cover of uh, Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill even before it became a thing from Stranger Things. So they were ahead of the Kate Bush revival. Um but yeah, definitely one of those bands I look back on and think, what was I thinking? That being said, if Pure Morning comes on like Sirius XM, like 90 station or something, I'll, I'll turn it up. But yeah, Placebo, for about a period of nine months, I was into them that I kind of thought, nah, not for me. I really appreciate that we both picked bands from 25 years that had hits 25 years ago. Um, and defined for me kind of this period where I, so I was, you know, in middle school, the late nineties and I discovered, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but Q101, the alternative rock station in Chicago and placebo was always on the top request charts there during that period in time. And, uh, that song, pure morning, it just, it takes me back to being in seventh grade, spending hours in my bedroom listening to alternative rock music and thinking about what it must be like to live in downtown Chicago and see music. And I remember... <laughs> Sounds I remember like placebo, in, downtown Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in health class learning about placebo uh, uh, effects and thinking right. about the band and be like, oh, I get it. Like you name your band after like these weird amorphous things in, in larger society. So, uh, that was a great question, Justin. Thank you for, for letting us dig up our slightly embarrassing, but you know, uh, confessional past. I appreciate that. Um, all right. Thank you, Justin, for that question. Please keep, keep these ones coming. Um, we got two more to get through here. The next one, um, kind of in honor of the, uh, indie cast, yay, nay, or, uh, nyak, uh, segment here. We've got from Jeff Sko at yahoo.com. Very simple question. OCs, King Giz, or both? What do you got, Dave? My knowledge of the OCs is limited to when... I saw them open up for pavement in Central Park in 2010. I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. I can dig it. Dude's holding his guitar really, really, really high. <clears throat> Aside from that, I don't know much about the OCs. It's a blind spot. I wish I didn't have, but I have it. And I love King Gizzard. I know there's a lot of commonality between the two bands. Just crossover. I think they were uh, King Gizzard was on the OCs label for a bit. But... Answer is King Giz by default, because I don't really know the OCs that well. If you want to uh, write us back and give us an OCs primer, do it. 
Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I first got into the OCs, the 2018 record Smoke Remoter, I think is what it's called, was one of my favorite records that year. I think it was in my top 20. Um, and that was at a time when I was trying to get into King Giz and I just did, didn't click. And it didn't click for a couple of years. But when it clicked, there was this moment for me of, oh, this is totally in the spirit of everything I love about Fish. It's just not as jammy. It's more prog and it's got this diverse kind of, they can play all styles of music. I am at the point now where I would say both just because I really like the OCs, but they are not as appointment listening for me as King Giz is. Uh, King Giz puts out a record. I'm listening to that in the, immediately. King Giz puts out a new live bootleg. I'm listening to that over and over again. King Giz has records I will listen to on a regular basis, I'll go through, you know, two, three week period in times where it's all I want to listen to. Um, good buddy, good friend of the pod, John McGar will send me King Giz shows on re-listen, you know, the best quality ones. And I'll dive into it. There's some amazing Giz, uh, live stuff out there that, um, for, for me and you and our buddy, Josh, our buddy, Ben Greenfield, a uh, really good friend of the pod, my buddy, John, um, for all of us, King Giz has become this kind of new obsession in a way. And so for me, it's, it's, it's gotta be Giz, even though I am both. Even my family likes King Giz. My girls run around like singing like rattlesnake. And, <laughs> and, and interior people, just cause rattlesnake, the rhyme scheme, it's, it's like a Ramon song. It's like a nursery rhyme. Yeah. Yeah. Plus isn't it with the OCs, like they spell it like OCs, but they also spell it like the O. CS, there's like multiple spellings of OCs. Those multiple spellings each have their own records. It's a lot to keep track of. With both bands, there's a lot to keep track of. I think for me, the differentiating factor is the diversity with King Giz, which was once a turnoff and is now like the thing I love about it. And the two times I've seen them in concert, it's like you're just seeing totally different bands. Isn't like there's like an OCs extended universe with like Ty Siegel and Michael Cronin? You can go down a rabbit hole kind of, that I go down those rabbit holes with fish and goose and Eggy yeah. and King Gizzard. And I just don't have time for other rabbit holes. So it's not a knock. It's more just a, Hey, give me like three more hours in the day and another day of the week. And I will absolutely go down an OC's rabbit hole. Yeah. There's like an extended, extended OC's universe. Other California based garage rock luminaries, all of who probably played on each other's records and, stuff so i'm glad they exist yeah exactly very happy they exist we got one more question you want to take this one yes this is from matthew nadler i don't know if it's matthew or matthew i don't know if it's french or canadian or either way don't want to insult you matthew but um goes, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for all your efforts to bring new music to fans of Fish. Thank you for listening, my guy. I've lost count of the numbers of great artists and albums I've found through your shows. Thinking more about the great 2023 spring tour, I decided to revisit the similarly short but fantastic June 2000 tour of Japan. Most people are aware of the greatness of the second set of the June 14, 2000 show that has been officially released. Of course, that is Fukuoka. I think there are many more awesome jams for that tour that are worthy of your in-depth analysis and hopefully one day worthy of a box set release. It would be cool to hear your take on that tour through the Beyond the Pond lens. Thank you again for all you do. 
Good question, and we agree. But first of all, I'm going to direct you to uh, episode six, way back when. That was our Big Japan episode where we talked about the Fukuoka twist and also ran down a series of highlights from that Japanese tour and made fun of the names of the venues in Japan, like Zap. We also highlighted uh, Mellow Yolotango and Ambient Music. That was as Brinkman core of an episode, as has existed. The fact that we did episode five on the Alpine Tweezer and All About Dad Rock, and episode six on the Fukuoka Twist and All About Ambient Music really set the tone for where this podcast was going to go. Anyone who's ever said we have never gone beyond the pond enough it's because those two episodes really defined a lot of uh, where we would go with this show. But um, the technology wasn't there. You have to listen to some like scratchy voices and some hiss. So we apologize for that, but the content's there. Shout out Blue Snowball Mics. You guys got us through the first 20-ish episodes of uh, Beyond the Pond. We would not be here without your low fidelity. Um, I'm right there with you, Matt. Uh, Matthew, uh, on, on this one, though, I think that this is something that we should pencil in as a deep dive. I'm thinking, and I don't want to make you wait too much, uh, my dude, but I'm thinking this is a 25th anniversary type of episode. Um, so look for us in June 2025 talking about Japan 2000. I'm already booking it out at this point in time. But, you know, just looking through the set list here and looking through some of the jams, I mean, he's absolutely right. It's littered with huge jams. I, I will say a secondary show that I do, and I haven't done it in a couple of years, but uh, The Ravine, the first episode, um, has a feature on the 6 uh, 9 Tweezer, which is a great, great jam. Oh, that's right. 610 down with Z's and Piper, 615 Ghost. I mean, there's some killer stuff here. The the Runaway Gym from the recently released 616 show. Um, I was also I was blown away. I was looking at this because 614, he's absolutely right. This is one of the strongest fish shows of all time. Um, one of my go-to shows. Whatever I kind of need to just like mellow out and like chill out. I was looking at it. This is the 13th highest rated fish show of all time according to fish.net that is pretty wild like for a tour that kind of gets overlooked or kind of is like celebrated but nobody really you know talks about like individual shows it's it's really really wild to think about do you want to know what the top 13 fish shows of all time are according to fish.net okay all right so starting with number one and i'll go in order here 1231.99 big cypress 1230.97 Eight two two thousand three it eleven twenty two ninety seven Hampton eight seventeen ninety seven night two of the went two twenty eight two thousand three Nassau eight twenty two twenty fifteen night two of Magnaball four three ninety eight Island Tour twelve thirty one ninety five MSG eleven seventeen that's, that's a little too low eleven seventeen ninety seven twelve eleven ninety seven I think that's a bit too high. Twelve thirty ninety nine. Mm. I think that's a bit too high. And six fourteen two thousand. And coming in at fourteen, this is wild with thirteen hundred and twenty votes, which is almost twice as many as Fukuoka. Twelve thirty twenty nineteen. That tweezer, that MSG tweezer is carrying a lot of weight there. That is that is that's back is breaking there. But um, 
yeah, the big cypress is 4.76, so 4.8. The uh, drum logo show is 4.6, so not a ton separates it, but I just thought it was really interesting. I'd never gone through and seen what, what the shows were rated as, but I think you're right, my dude. I think we should cover Japan 2000. We're just probably going to have to put a pin in that for just a little bit till it makes a little bit more sense um, from a timing standpoint, but Thank you all out there for writing in. If uh, anyone out there has questions for Beyond the Pond, we will answer them. We're going to do more of these mailbag episodes here. We're going to do more um, mailbag segments. So Beyond the Pond podcast at gmail.com. On this note, let's get to the fish. So as we noted at the top here, we are covering August 1993, a tour, a month, a period in fish history that when we looked back at the BTP archives, we were shocked to learn we have never talked about this month. There's actually only one jam from 1993 that we have covered in BTP history. Bellingham, Washington, April 2nd, 1993. It was such a, it's such an overlooked jam the Jambase did a write-up on our episode saying, thank BTP for bringing this into our world and, to, and for reminding us how good this was. Because nobody talks about it. There's so many great Weekapogs and stashes across March and April 93. And I guarantee you, nobody's talking about it anymore. There's like old curmudgeons and people like us who do our research that uh, think about 1993. So we want to bring all of you into the world here of August 1993 fish we're going to talk about kind of the impact of this month, and then we're going to spin this off, like we said, into a few other bands that we wanted to highlight and what the August 93 moment means. Um, so I want to start this kind of as broad as possible, Dave. So again, we haven't talked about this month, and this is a month that you and I, we text about a fair amount. I think every time we hear an August 93 jam, we're like, my God, this band was so good. Um, tell me in your mind... Why was August 1993 so essential to Fish's development? Well, I think it's twofold. As in August of 1993, the rotation was such that it was almost second to none in the sense that your Rift had just come out. So they were playing tons of songs off of Rift, tons of songs off of Picture of Nectar, lots of things like lots of Choxer's Torture, lots of Ghoul Papyrus, lots of Split Open Melt, like all the songs that we think of as being Fish's finest, earliest, best foundational songs were being played in spades. And the speed and dexterity at which they were being played was, you look back and you just marvel. These are these guys, I think at this point in 1993, they were like 29 or 30 years old. The enthusiasm and the speed 
that they have on stage. You can look at it on paper and thinking, all right, do I really want to listen to a set that's got shock to torture, sample to jar, glue papyrus mound? Is it skippable? No, it's not skippable because you listen to it and with the dexterity and the accuracy and the speed, you just get swept up in it. Like you hear fish in August 1993, it almost feels like you're flying. And when I said twofold, the second part being that this is when you really, really begin to see the beginning of type two jamming, taking the guts out of these songs, ripping their hearts out and just really doing improv improvisation, just pulling the songs apart in all sorts of different ways. This is, you got, you know, your tweezers, your David Bowie's, um, Mike's song, Run Like an Antelope, all of which featured this just like uh, improvisation is such that you'd put it on and if you weren't looking at your phone or looking at the CD player, you really would kind of have no idea exactly what was being played. I know they had started to do this in April of 1992, but by August 1993, it becomes a totally, totally different beast. Uh, in particular, you can look to things like the Run Like an Antelope Fest from August 14th of 1993, where Antelope segues into Sparks from The Who, multiple different songs. I think maybe there's some Akasuba Policeman in there. I can't recall. I just remember listening to this on the way to Jones Beach, 1995, my buddies being 15 years old, thinking this is blowing my mind. My friend's saying, this is hard fish. This is like the nitty gritty. This is hard. This is not for newbies. This is this crazy Tinley Park, August 14, 1993 jam. And that type of utter abandon where song structures just go completely by the wayside in favor of the hay-hole type improvisation that they've been doing, in favor of the secret language and the in-jokes that have been all leading up to this point. It's August 93 is just, it's a turning point. There's really no bad shows that month, and the band sounds so excited as to what's going to come next that it's just, um, once you hear it, you know it and you understand it. Yeah, I echo a lot of that. And I, I think, you know, for me, I think 92 and 93 are kind of companions in the band's evolution. And I think that the closest companion to August 93 uh, prior to it was April 92. And, you know, at that point in time, you've got this foundation. Um, the riff songs have basically been written. There's not a ton of new songs that are being debuted. The biggest upgrades for the band are kind of technical and they're going to they're going to introduce the baby grand and they're going to, you know, uh, graduate to theaters and then amphitheaters. But you know, that sound of April 92 sounds so pure fish to me. And what's happening during that month is they're learning how to segue and they're learning how to expand songs like David Bowie and tweezer that will become the biggest jam vehicles for the band. But in April, 1992 are still, they don't want to lose the energy. They don't want to lose the, the focus that they have within the shows. They don't want to abandon that. And they don't know what's going to happen on the other side. Fast forward 15 months, you know, we, we talk, we've talked about how great March and April 93 are, how experimental those months are. Songs like Stash, songs like Weekapog. But when you get to August, you get this kind of combination of a band that has booked a lot of huge amphitheaters and are underselling them like crazy and are kind of just like, hey, if we've got this space, we're just going to mess around and see what happens by playing massive rock shows in front of 15,000 people, 10,000 people, 5,000 people, however many show up. 
on top of that, they have this foundation that you're talking about of songs and they have this like communication with each other and they start to dissect what their songs are about. And at this point you get like, uh, you know, this transformation and it's where, you know, they learned how to segue in 92, but in, in August 93, this is when the segue becomes an important factor of fish. It's not just enough to jam one song. It's how do you jam that song and build it into another song and then jam that song and maybe bring it back to the original or put it into something completely new. Um, it's how to take a melody and an idea and distort that within a jam and then find yourself on the other side of the hill and you have no idea how you got there and you have no idea how you're going to get back and you're just along for the ride. It's about starting to scare each other. And it's the type of stuff that without August 93, there's simply no way we're going to get the Segway Fest of June 94, the massive jams of November 94, June 95. We're not going to get the dedication to arena rock spe spectacles of December 95 and October 95. We're not going to get that dedication to kind of risk-taking and throwing yourself completely out there that will ultimately result in what the band would accomplish in 97, 98, 99, and 2000. And so much of who they are still today, I think, is rooted in um, August of 1993. And I'm curious kind of with that positioning, we're going to talk about this when we get to our second segment here, but do you look at August 1993 as kind of a moment of survival or reinvention or both? Not so much survival because I think at this point, Fish is going to thrive no matter what they did. Less reinvention, more like evolution. As in this, like you said, with kind of April 1992, begin to kind of telegraph the direction in which they were going. I mean, I don't think they had to reinvent themselves so much as just take everything that they were good at, take their best songs, and just jam them out to more interesting and fascinating proportions, which led to, then you got 1994, where songs like, goodness, you had things like David Bowie, which are going, you know, like 25, 27-minute versions of David Bowie, leading up to the incredible one from uh, Providence Civic Center in 19, uh, December 1994, which led to the building blocks, Cubist jamming of summer 1995. So less reinvention, more just a stepping stone, and yet probably one of their more significant stepping stones, just in the sense that the whole month is so enthusiastic and good and built on the first type of really deep improvisation that they get on a consistent basis. So, yeah, they weren't reinventing themselves so much as just looking back at their careers. I think August 93 is just like a logical step of the revolution. Yeah. I think the only thing I would counter is it's evolution through survival, because I almost think if they don't have an August 93 moment, the thing that makes fish so special lingers for maybe a couple more years. But if they don't take that next step forward, they're not fish. There's a lot of bands that did what fish did really well, by spring 1993, there's not a lot of bands that have had an August 93 moment. You know, it's, it's a rare thing. And right. even in the jam band world, I do think that there tends to, there's a tendency to find a sound that works and then experiment within that. And I don't want to name any names because I don't want to be insulting, but there are a few jam bands out there that like they found their sound and they experiment within that. They certainly experiment. There's cool stuff that happens, weird covers, jams, but there's not a lot of evolution. 
And one of the things that August 93 defines for fish is that evolution is going to be key to their overall history. Yeah. Um, before we dive into a few of the key points of August 93, I do want to just ask you, I want to play a little game. I'm going to say a different era of fish's history. And I want you to just in like one sentence, tell me how you think that this era connects to August 93. All right. Fall 1997. Taking the funk sound and beating the hell out of it in the name of fun and inventiveness and enjoyment. And they knew what they had. They knew it was good. Now let's improvise the shit out of it. I like that. I think I, I, think I would say it, the funk sound is a part of it, but, but the fact that they're able to switch things up as they're jamming. So be in a really good sound and then say, okay, what's the next thing? And that's where you find ambient music. That's where you find the textures of some of those great, uh, 97 jams, but that's all rooted to me in, in 93. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, 2.0. Weirdness is good. And our fan base is a loyal fan base that appreciates our experimentation and will follow us wherever we go and jump off of cliffs with us. Much like August 1993, some of the stuff was a bit trying, but they knew that the fans would eat it up and accept it and follow this band wherever they would go. So, which gave them the power in 2.0 to do some wacky shit. All that and do not be afraid of the darkness. The darkness is mm. your friend. Summer 2015. Approach and I would caution, as they would say. <laughs> uh, summer 2015. Trey, don't be afraid of playing rhythm guitar because you're a really good rhythm guitarist. You know it. The band knows it. We all know it. And once you get good at that, everyone can just fly off of that. And let's be as happy as possible coming off of an incredible Grateful Dead festival and stretching my fingers out as far as they can go. So let's all be happy and make some incredible music. I agree with all that. I think I would say, um, when in doubt, trust your classic songs. Summer 2015 is littered with great versions of Tweezer and Mike Song, huge placements for songs like The Lizards, Chalk dust. Chalk dust. What a summer for chalk dust. Oh, I mean, there's that segment from Blossom that goes chalk dust, tweezer, lizards, and it's all fused together. My favorite show of the year. Yeah. And I remember when it happened being like, tell someone in 1993 that we're 40 minutes into a set and we played three songs, chalk dust, tweezer, and lizards, and just watch their head explode. But it's, it's tied to it because it's the, those are their classic songs. Nowadays, Eight years later, those are all going to be new songs. But back in 2015, they were they were tapping into those old songs. Uh, two more. The Baker's Dozen. Baker's Dozen kind of felt like August 1993 just confined to Madison Square Garden in terms yeah. of... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Each the night. covers, the <laughs> weirdness, the jokes, the humor, the jams, all of it. Each night, a different surprise. The playing wasn't as crisp as August 1993, but that's okay. It's almost like if you could take August 93 band, like the, those guys, and say, don't worry, one day you'll be able to do this in front of 20,000 people on a nightly basis in the greatest arena in the world. Like, yeah. That's how they played every night in August 93. 
it distilled the essence of August 1993 to New York City in July of 2017. The last one, 4.0, uh, the fall 2021 tour. Um, just the feeling of, wow, we are so lucky to be able to be doing this. We are great friends and great musicians, and we still have this within us, and we never, ever took it for granted, and now we're really, really, really not going to take it for granted. So let's just take this shit as far as it can possibly go. I think all that, I think also setlist chicanery is always one of those structural things to fall back on within fish. Like when in doubt, kind of similar to those, like the classic songs sometimes are your best songs. Um, and that's not a argument against evolutionary songwriting, but like sometimes those songs are huge. Uh, sometimes just fucking with the setlist and putting songs in places that they don't belong is the absolute best thing that you could do to keep everything fresh, keep everyone on their toes. I mean, there were shows in that tour, San Francisco, Chula, parts of the LA Forum show where you're just like, I mean, the LA Forum second set, that is an attempt to connect to 1993 Fish. But um, a lot of that tour, you have these moments where you're just like, they're playing this song right now. We're like 15 minutes into the concert. That's something that just didn't happen a couple of years prior. Uh, well, that was fun. I, I, I'm, I'm a huge believer, and I think you are too, that all these eras, these big peak periods are all tied together in some larger narrative. And it's fun to kind of connect the dots between these. Um, before we share a little bit of music with you guys, we just want to go over just a couple big themes and big takeaways from the month. Um, my first two big themes from this month is you're tossing the rule book in the trash like Pete Maverick does. You know that scene in Top Gun Maverick where he's walking up and he just throws the giant rule book in the trash can and he looks like such a badass and he's just, you know, he's, he's embarrassing all the young pilots because they uh, call him an old man at the bar the night before and just throws the rule book in the trash and is like, hey, we're redefining it on the fly right now. That is one of the biggest things that happens throughout this year. And that's when he gets to all the convert to Scientology. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Somewhere, somewhere, <laughs> right? Um, right. So, I think the other big thing that I take away is uh, uh, the big, my big theme is uh, they're exploring what's on the other side of their songs for the first time in five years. And it's kind of important to remember that if you go back to 1988 Fish, there's a ton of jams throughout 87 and 88. It is heavily experimental. There are big, long, long jams that the band plays. Um, and that's there's a ton of attempt at who the band would ultimately be six, seven years later, they don't have the chops yet for it. And they do this really fascinating thing that I think takes a ton of courage and a ton of balls to do it. And that is they abandon that side of themselves for like five years and they tighten everything up. And the entire focus from 1989 through 1992 is on, um, uh, uh, is on tightening their show, giving this variety show filled with energy so 1989, 90, 91, 92, this four year stretch of time, the band is really tinkering with and, 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 uh, focusing on the structure of the show and giving you as much diversity. And this continues into early 1993, but in August 93, they tap into who they were at in 1988, but they're better now. They're tighter, they're faster, they're more adventurous. And so they use this period to really 
shift all the norms and all the rules around. And uh, this is what leads ultimately to all the brilliance that's going to come over the next seven years. What are a couple of themes that you got from this month? Um, really, there's a lot of start-stop jamming, a lot of filling of the hay holes, a lot of playing with reckless abandon, and kind of also using, uh, this is for the first time, they really start to use like some bust-outs and rarities because they've had fans long enough now that they've been around long enough for the fans the OG fans that they understand old songs and some rare songs. And I think um, what really comes to mind in this instance is one of the first shows of August, August 2nd, 1993, from uh, the Ritz Theater in the Ybor City historical portion of Tampa, Florida. Yes, this being the Ybor City that the whole study talks about so eloquently in the song Killer Parties. Ybor City is Trey Speedy, but they throw such killer parties. Killer parties almost killed me. Yes. Anyway, I mean, even at that show, before we even get to the jam, the incredible Mike song in the second set with the heavy metal portion with the heavy metal singer who comes on stage and shrieks like an unholy combination of Iron Maiden's Bruce Dickinson and Rush's Getty Lee. In the first set, they're playing like Dog Log. That's a rarity. Trey says, these are songs you wanted to hear. This is a request from our sound man. They're having fun. Also, the second set uh, with this Mike song, they're playing a rarity, uh, the Leonard Skinner song, the Bow to Curtis Lowe. They played the Who Covers Sparks. And they play Rift. So in between this Mike song, Madness, and these classic rock covers, they just throw in their own song, Rift, because why the hell not? We could do that. We're fucking fish. It's August 1993. But as I also alluded to earlier in terms of themes, what's important is that there is a rotation. It isn't like um, Fish 4.0 where Trey's got like a big piece of paper at 60 songs on and he goes, oh, let's play this. Oh, let's play this. Ooh, all right, let's play Mound. What the hell? There's like an actual set rotation. I don't know if they're writing out set lists at that point, but you're getting a lot of the classics because they're playing them often. They're playing them well. And as I said before... They've had the fan base long enough that they can have fan service. So you get a lot of teases, and there's a lot of, lots of secret language. Um, what's the tweezer? I want to say is it August 12th, 93, with the get back oh, yeah. teases? Okay. Get back teases, Simpsons language, the Brady Bunch, all the goofy-ass stuff that makes fish fish is on full display in August 93. It's also in terms of bust outs. I mean, this is the return of Slave. Slave hasn't been played in two years. It's not oh, played right. throughout the latter half of 91. It's not played throughout uh, all of 92, early 93. That comes back here at the Cincinnati Zoo show, and then it is played Out again, of Haley's. Out of Haley's, and then famously played again to fans chanting it on uh, one of the best fish shows ever, 1230, 1993, from the... Uh, Cumberland County. Cumberland Civic County Center. Civic Center. Yeah, the, the quadruple yeah. C. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm right there with all that from a thematic standpoint. I think just from a takeaway standpoint, um, you know, I said this earlier, I, I think of this as like survival via evolution. And I feel like the biggest thing that this, this month says to me is that this is a band that is diving into themselves and it's a defining feature of what will make some of the best fish jams in years to come is, um, you know, Fish does this really interesting thing where they experiment with a lot of styles. And you get funk, you get ambient, you get hard rock, you get heavy metal, you get bluegrass. It's all 
spun through this uh, um, filter of fish. And it is something that when they jam and they jam really well, you can have stylistic moments, but it always sounds like fish. And that is one of the things that will, I think forever carry this band is they don't sound like a band that is trying to be a heavy metal band or is trying to be a funk band. They sound like a band that is using those styles of music in, you know, like a stew like manner fusing it together with other styles of music and it all comes through as their voice. Um, I think I would also say, you know, just thinking about this, I, I mentioned April 92, but I think I would argue like if you're really trying to make like a crisp list of the biggest and most important and most significant months in fish history, I think it starts with August 93 and I think it goes August 93, June, November 94, December 95, November 97, October 2013, August 2015, July 2017, and August and October 2021. You have any you'd want to add into there, Dave? Or I want to be as like tight as possible here. Um, no, that's what I would. I would have those. Maybe, maybe June '95. My heart wants me to add June 95 and the fact that you're allowing me to do that, I think we're going to have to do it. June 95 has got to okay. be there. The, the, I mean, there's, there's no fish without 50 minute versions of tweezer. Um, I think as well, and I th I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like one of my big takeaways from this month is that this is kind of how you level up as a band and, and as a business. Like this is, they're owning their sound. They're owning their style. They're taking on the ambition of playing amphitheaters that they're not selling out. They're starting to chart a modern tour. What are your thoughts on this idea? You agree? I agree wholeheartedly. This is sometimes you got to think big. I mean, there's something to be said. You want to keep your ego in check, but false modesty and jam banding, that's a bad thing. This is fish playing bigger venues, playing headline shows, not worrying if those venues aren't entirely sold out. Because sometimes in order to be the best, you have to act like the best. Yeah. And you have to, if you play, if you think you're huge and play appropriately huge venues, you force the community to take notice. Like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And when they played like Red Rocks and opened Red Rocks with Divided Sky and then did like a Harpua right afterwards... You know, they're kind of saying, all right, this is our big moment. Let's play a big show. And that Red Rock show, to me, is one of the defining shows in their history just because it's like all their best songs played well at like their first opportunity at this like legendary jam band shed. I, mean, I guess you could also argue the Red Rock show from June 1994 is kind of similar in terms of being like greatest hits played well. But um, you can see it now. The jam bands that are going to have the most success going forward are the ones not afraid to, not afraid to play to large venues, not afraid to fall on their face, you know, not afraid to say, let's think big. Let's, uh, if we care about ourselves, we care about how we market ourselves, the people start to care as well. Fuck false modesty, man. I, I hear you. And I feel like, um, you know, the, the two points, like, yeah, this is a band that is kind of staking a claim of who they are and they're owning it. And there's really no going back from this. Like, hey, this is either going to work or it's not going to work. And there's something really ambitious about that because, 
you are assuming that the hype is real. And the reason why people keep coming back is because more people are going to keep coming back. And that, that's a business risk and creative risk in and of itself. Um, but I think this kind of sets the tone for where the jam band community is going to go. You know, so much of the Grateful Dead being seen as kind of the godfathers of the jam band world, they are still also, you know, rooted heavily in like 70s classic rock in a lot of ways. And, you know, they're a bit outside of the culture, but they, the, some of their moves feel more 70s classic rock than they do jam band. And Fish kind of sets the tone that like part of jam band culture is reflecting culture at large through this kind of weird kaleidoscope fashion. It's also embracing humor in music. It's also um, taking kind of sticky things and putting them into your show and blowing them out of proportion. It's also jamming and different set lists. And it's, you know, let's push our songs and our song and our set list crafting to the limit. Um, and it's that kind of arrogance but that confidence that a band like goose right now has that they are taking chances from a business standpoint from a songwriting standpoint from a jamming standpoint um that is risky and um it may not work for everyone i know that there are a lot of fish fans that early early fish fans kind of backed out around august 93 because it got too weird and too aggressive and too loud and too fast um and didn't want to hang out even going into like 94 and 95 um, I think it's funny. I had never thought about this until just now, but in 1993, the Grateful Dead summer tour was largely wrapped up by the end of June. So with Fish Summer playing almost all of July and almost all of August, there was no overlap in any of the Grateful Dead shows. What if that was in purpose? That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if. I mean, they were booking those probably without knowing what the dead was doing, but I'm sure that there were those. You don't think they knew what the dead were doing, but yeah, that's right. Did yeah, someone might have. And um, those amphitheaters are amphitheaters that the dead were playing as well earlier in the summer. So you're seeing the band, right? I guess, and at that point, the dead were also playing a lot of stadiums, which are far out of their reach. But no, it's interesting, kind of, um, you know. Picking and choosing when do they go on tour based on when they're gonna when there's gonna be a need for people to see shows. Um, anything else that you want to say about August ninety three? I feel like we've said a good amount here, just in terms of the context of it. Any any shows, any jams stick out to you that you want to recommend? It's a really good run for Rebus. A lot of it is excellent Rebus from August ninety three. Um, as I said earlier, August. 14th, 1993. August 14th is a really good year, a uh, really good date in fish history. He has some excellent shows in that date. August 14, 2009 immediately comes to mind. Um, I guess I love August 2nd, 1993. That's kind of like it really encompasses everything that was good about that month. I like the show with the Get Back Tweezer, August 12, 1993. Plus, there's a lot of... I think there's a lot of live fish releases from August 93 and even ones that haven't been released on Relisten is pretty good soundbirds, excellent audience tapes. In addition to being a great month of playing, it's very solidly documented in the ears as well. Yeah, I I, I echo that. I, I would I would say 81193 there's a uh, Mike's into Great Gig in the Sky, into Weekapog that was released on Live Fish 7 that is one of my favorite fish jams of all time. Mm. Uh, 8.15 and 8.16 are great. 
there's a great show from Portland that's been officially released. 12-7 was officially released. I mean, there's just, or it's going to be 8-7. It's just, it's a month that's chock full of excellent set lists, excellent playing, excellent jams. I encourage more people, the further we get away from August 93, to continue going back and celebrating this year because it is... um, it's an important milestone in the band's history, and it really kind of showcases as we've tried to portray over the last uh, couple of last you know, 20, 30 minutes. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a month that really showcased where the band would go with their successes. So now we're just going to play a little bit of uh, two jams you picked out from August 93. This being um, part of the Mike song, August 2nd, 1993, and the uh, Run Like an Antelope. 16 and a half minute antelope from August 28, 
enjoyed those absolutely mind-altering jams that we just played for you. August 93 stuff. What a month, man. Ah, you go back there and just like so much energy, so much precision. Unbelievable month in fish history. Um, yeah, my first tape ever was April 16, 1993. Wow. At that time, I was 14 years old and Cavern was my favorite song. I remember thinking... Why are they playing Cavern so fast? <laughs> this is so fast. This Choctaw is so fast. Like I, I don't know what my first August 93 tape was. It was always kind of this month. It was almost like November 97 when I was first getting into the band where there was like a mythical nature to it rather than it wasn't where I was getting handed shows from. I don't think I heard an August 93 show until Live Fish seven which was eight fourteen ninety three which the live fish series like did a really nice job for a fan like me getting into them during the hiatus of like it scattered all these eras it was just like here's a bit of this here's a bit of this here's a bit of this and then now you can go deep kid um but we hope you enjoy that 93 discourse and again uh that 93 discourse um we wanted to spin this off as we are wont to do here at beyond the pond and talk about two bands that we love that one of which is about 10 years old, right around the time that fish was when they went through their August 93 period. Another one is about 30 years old and has gone through an August 93 period. And we wanted to explore what fishes transition and evolution and experimentation from August 1993 says about both where other bands have gone and where other bands can go throughout their careers. So we're going to talk about Parquet Courts, uh, one of our favorite rock bands, indie rock bands in the last decade, and Bell and Sebastian, a um, 
legendary band at this point in time, a band that, um, for me was foundational getting into indie rock. I know for you was, um, and I know you have a lot of really good thoughts about them. Um, so let's, let's just dive into this. Um, Dave, give me just a quick snapshot of, um, the formation and development of Bell and Sebastian through their first decade. Well, uh, formation for Bell and Sebastian, I think their first album, Tiger Milk, I think it came out in 1996, and then quickly followed up by If You're Feeling Sinister. Um, many still think it's their best album. Early Bell and Sebastian can best be characterized as quiet and bookish and very much indebted to Nick Drake. In addition to those records, they also um, had the very... 90s British tradition of putting out lots of singles and EPs. There's uh, multiple compilations of their singles and uh, their three-song EPs that can be purchased. And this is a band, actually, goodness, until I kind of got to law school, I didn't even like them that much because I thought they were, oh, for lack of a better word, kind of wussy, which is to say the frontman Stuart Murdoch. Very erudite, very wordy, and all the songs are about sad boys and sad girls. I think the name Bell and Sebastian actually comes from a children's television show. And really, the earlier records, they're marvels of pop music, but they are excellent melodies, which you really kind of have to strain to hear them at times just because they're purposely quiet. And that would constitute the first decade. And I think I'll get to this in a little bit. But kind of um, in terms of August 1993 for them. Well, Brian, I've kind of talked about Bell and Sebastian, about um, early stuff. Nick Drake, quiet, bookish, very British people. It's kind of politically incorrect term now. People describe this band as limp-wristed. So... That was kind of the first decade of Bell and Sebastian. So tell me a little bit about like Parquet Courts that got started off. So they're about 10, 12 years old. They released their first record in 2013 or their first major record in 2013, Light Up Gold. They released American Specialties uh, in 2011, um, kind of overlooked uh, in, some, in some cases. Light Up Gold was kind of where they really uh, were, 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 were discovered. It is a... Uh, a band that was um, founded in Brooklyn uh, by four, two brothers, four friends, Andrew Savage, Austin Brown, Sean Yeaton, and Max Savage. Um, Is it Brooklyn via Texas, right? Brooklyn via Texas, yes. Um, I think one of the best ways to think about them is they're kind of an amalgamation of 90s uh 90s indie rock with kind of 60s surfer uh, garage rock kind of spun out in a very 2010s worldview and perspective uh, from a from a lyrical standpoint by Andrew Savage. Um, and they're a band that over the last decade, what is really always fascinating about them is when I first heard them in 2013, it was just like that pinpoint kind of cardigan sweater uh, plaid shirt, tight, skinny jeans with a guitar, you know, way up high, kind of like you were talking about with the OCs, 
playing almost like the kinks style music you know playing kind of like mod music from the late 1960s and they feel like a new generation for you know the kinks there's a lot of hooks there's a lot of like trickery within their rhythm rhythm section there's a lot of like kind of like wink wink type moments uh lyrically within the band um there is a masculinity about them but also like an overt sensitivity and so for me like the first time i heard them i was like oh my god we've got the kinks in 2013 this is insane What's been really cool about them is over the first decade, kind of as, as we get up to the second part of our discussion here, the band has started to shift and you start to hear kind of the transition from garage surf indie rock into um, uh, a band that embraces keyboards and embraces really soft edges and embraces um, electronic music to a small degree, almost thinking like ambient experimental kind of in the background and layers of sounds rather than just strict guitar uh, garage rock. So kind of turning back towards Bell and Sebastian, tell me after that first 10 year period in time, what were some of their significant artistic shifts and how do those kind of align with where fish was at as they were shifting in 1993 themselves? What was happening is that they kind of hit a wall artistically. They had the first three records being tiger milk. Uh, if you're feeling sinister, then the boy with the Arab strap in 1999, all classics, all very well received containing like a lot of songs that still, light up the live show today. And then I think in 2000, they put out a record called Fold Your Hands, Child, You Walk Like a Peasant, which I think is taking a line from the, um, the Drew Barrymore movie Ever After, or Evermore, or some Drew Barrymore fairy movie. I'm not entirely sure what it's called. And that was a record where kind of the well had started to run dry. It's sort of taken the quiet, erudite thing as far as it could go. And a lot of members of Bell and Sebastian, and there are several members, I think there's like at least eight full-time members of the band. Um, Stuart Murdoch was always the main songwriter, but now um, the auxiliary members started to write songs with varying levels of success. And that record, I think it's still pretty good. It has some good songs. It wasn't as well-received critically, and kind of the critical consensus was all right, they've kind of, as long as they can keep doing this, this is kind of, we're starting starting to hit the bottom of the barrel, starting to do the table scraps at this point. And people kind of said the record sounded like a, a collection of B-sides. So they realized that there had to be a correction. So in 2003, they come out with a record called Dear Catastrophe Waitress, which I don't want to say louder, but it's certainly brasher, it's more rhythmic. It has contributions from the other members of the band. In particular, the guitarist uh, Stevie Jackson has some really excellent songs in this album. But it's no longer just quiet, bookish, Nick Drake stuff. The songs, there's like some propulsion. These songs, they go. There's songs you could actually enjoy hearing on stage. Because up until this point, the Bell and Sebastian live show wasn't much to write home about. Um, they really did not tour the United States very often to begin with, and when they did, the shows were kind of quiet and shambolic. But I saw them on the Dear Catastrophe Waitress tour, and this was almost a little bit jam band-like in the sense that they were really trying on stage. They had 
a lot of songs to choose from. The set list was interesting. They were talking to the audience. They really wanted to establish themselves as a live band. And this was kind of the album that did it. And then, after this record in 2004, they put out the book CP, which uh, the song your cover's Blown, which you might play a little bit. It was like a disco song. It was like a Bee Gees song that had, they said it was their version of uh, like Bohemian Rhapsody. So, basically, they decided that in order for us to stay together as a band, in order us to keep going, we've got to do more than be quiet. We've got to play funk. We have to do Northern Soul. Like we can dip back into the old catalog. We really have to become like somewhat of a fire-breathing, albeit very polite, fire-breathing, eight-headed monster on stage. And then by with their 2006 album, The Life Pursuit, which had convincing versions of funk and garage rock and multi-layered suites, I still think it's their best record. They had established themselves as a live band capable of doing much more than just being something for Nick Drake aficionados and sad-eyed indie kids to talk about over chamomile tea. I mean, it's wild. Like, Dear Catastrophe Waitress was one of those records that um, when I was in college, I remember when that came out and then The Life Pursuit came out a few years later in college. Those were albums I heard everywhere. Like, that was one of those bands Mm. that when those records came out, that was my introduction and then I went backwards. But those albums, like... They sound like college to me. They sound like what happens, almost the same shift that happened within the band where you kind of realize, okay, I've lived all of my life in this one place. It's time for me to go off and kind of learn about myself and experiment and explore and approach the world in ways that like I didn't know possible before. And you hear that kind of mirrored um, in in that music. But um it's a fascinating point in any band's history. And I think about it kind of shifting back to parquet courts where I see it for the band is, um, they put out this record content nausea as parquet courts spelled P A R K A Y Q U A R T S. They get signed to, um, rough trade and they put out human performance, which human performance and from 2016 and 2018's Wide Awake, I think are their two strongest records to this point in time. But in between those records, and part of what made those records so so special and endearing is they have a larger recording budget and they really use it from a sonic standpoint. So um, they up the ante and they are, they are playing still just as hook-driven and just as kind of punkish and as groovy and as kind of, um, you know... Uh, uh, kind of that wink, wink, nod, nod look to to your audience through your lyrics. They now have more instrumentation. They have a better studio set up. There's better editing, better production on the albums. So before they made Human Performance and Wide Awake, these kind of maximalist sounds for the band, they recorded this instrumental record called Monastic Living uh, from 2015. Um, I recommend this re- this album to all BTP listeners out there, if you've never heard this, this is it's instrumental. It's very jammy. It's very experimental. Um, I just want to read the like Apple music description because it really, it sums it up really nicely. Um, I don't want to be called a poet barks parquet courts, Andrew Savage on monastic living opener. No, no, no. There are a few lyrics here and there hail from the start for their for tinnitus, uh language driven post-punk. The 
New York outfit follows 2015's sunbathing with this brief but uncompromising concept EP, a meditative, mostly instrumental set of rugged noise rock that finds them taking an unexpected vow of silence. Filled with chunky rhythmic experiments, the expansive title cuts, and psychedelic textures, the end result is casually transcendent, and it is entirely. This is a jam band record made for indie rock heads, and this to me along with what they did on Human Performance and Wide Awake, and then recently in 2021, Sympathy for Life, um, really showcases a band that is embracing sonic experimentation and bringing that into the center of who they are musically. Um, it's it's an amazing moment that kind of leads into the third segment here. Um, what would you say, kind of turning back to Balance Sebastian, what would you say is their peak moment as a band at this point? For me, probably the peak moment would be um, the 2006 record they put out, The Life Pursuit. This is kind of the realization of all that they were trying to do with Dear Catastrophe Waitress, which to me, that still feels like a transitional record. And Life Pursuit takes what they were trying to do and just blows it up. Like I said, that album, it's got like T-Rex style like struts. It's got funk. It has anthems it's got sweets it's got a a song called we are the sleepyheads which is played so impossibly fast it sounds like the keebler elves like on amphetamines running around it's got classic bell and sebastian it's just basically the realization of everything that they were trying to do to move forward and since then they put out several eps i think i want to say they put out Four different records. They put out, at one point, they put out three EPs in a row. And I think even Apple Music and Spotify, they're kind of treated as one record together. Like five songs each, 15 songs, but only four actual albums. But they're still pretty productive and prolific up to this day. They still play plenty of shows in the States. I think they had a tour that was recently postponed because Stuart Murdoch suffers from, I think, chronic fatigue syndrome which might have waylaid him for a little bit. But um, their two most recent albums, being Late Developers and A Bit of Previous, both very good. And both they're good at what Bell and Sebastian does now, which is um, some rock and roll, some quiet stuff, some funk, some disco, a lot of Northern Soul. And I think uh, maybe we'll even play the song Un- Unnecessary Drama, which sounds exactly like a new pornographer song. Like I heard it, I'm like, oh... This is New Pornographers. Oh, no, it's Bell and Sebastian, who once toured New Pornographers. I was at that show. Just uh, certainly the Venn diagram of New Pornographers and Bell and Sebastian fans is just one gigantic circle. Because uh, can't have one without the other. But no, to me, it's an example of a band that saw that there had to be some kind of correction in order for them to continue in their career. And they saw it, and they seized upon it, and they did so in a way that doesn't make them sound like sellouts, It almost kind of felt like a natural evolution looking back in retrospect. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, that's such a critical moment for a lot of bands. I mean, so many bands, especially if you hear them at an early stage of their career, they they hit you with this very specific sound. Um, But if they can't move beyond that, they become part of a time and place rather than something that you live with. And a band like Bell and Sebastian really proved that they could be something that you live with long term. I think when I wrote about the album for the Coat Machine Glow website, 
I can cheekily compare them to the uh, Cubs, Phillies, Mariners pitcher Jamie Moyer, who invented, <laughs> reinvented his career through a series of change-ups. He threw all kinds of change-ups at varying speeds. I said, Bell and Sebastian like Jamie Moyer. They reinvented themselves for the change-up. Just hang around. Just always there. Um, I think that, you know, the interesting thing, flipping back to Parquet Courts here, is that that part of their story is yet to be written. And we don't know what's going to happen. You know, I think from a peak standpoint, I think the best Parquet Courts song that's ever been written is Freebird 2 off of Wake Up. Um, it just consolidates. Amazing it. song. Incredible song. What a hook. The music video, I recommend anyone to watch the music video. It is so good. It um, looks like an American bandstand video. It's just a song that kind of, it takes every aspect that makes this band so compelling and uh, such an earworm band and puts it all into one track. And Wake Up, you know, overall is just kind of like a peak moment. That is that is that band discovering who they could be. Um, their live shows got really good around that point in time. You know, but I think, you know, in terms of what they could do going forward, transitioning to kind of the last part here is like, I think we heard it on uh, their 2021 record, Sympathy for Life, this idea of a band that can take this sound that is rooted in, you know, 60s garage rock, very kinks type of sound. And similar to what the kinks did, you know, add keyboards and add contemplative lyrics as you're growing and evolving and changing as a person. Um, and I think, you know, over the next 10 years, it's going to be really interesting to hear. I don't see a band like Parquet Courts going back and, you know, releasing uh, another Light Up Gold or another Human Performance, or another Wake Up. I see them continue to experiment and tweak their sound and push their sound in directions that um, will keep listeners on their toes. And you know, they strike me as a band that is almost from the school of Spoon or the school of Wilco uh, or the National even to a certain degree um, in that every album is a chance to build upon the sound from the past. It's not a chance to co totally abandon it, which would be a big differentiator from Fish, um, but it is a chance to change up what their overall sound is. And similar to what you've talked about with Bell and Sebastian, um, they're the type of band that I could see over the next 10, 15 years kind of turning into a bit of a chameleon and shifting and shape-shifting from record to record while still retaining that like original groove and indie rock sound that makes them so endearing. Um, but it's going to be fascinating to watch. It's always fascinating to see this. No, that band definitely has like some Spoon, Yola Tango, New Pornographers, Wilco DNA in the sense that you could see them put out like a record every two years Yeah, and just treat it like a job. Like a nine to five. And it's reliable, but it like also, you know, Yola Tango currently is put out my favorite record of this year and they're 30 years in, 40 right. years into their career. Like that is a band that they've put out a lot of just kind of like middle of the road, solid records that I don't really have a problem with, but didn't really blow me away. And then also all these records that sound a part of Yola Tango's history, but also completely change your perspective of the band at various times. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's listen to a bit of a mashup of uh, some of these songs. And then for Parquet Courts, we're going to listen to uh, Stone and Starving, then the Freebird 2, and then Walking at a Downtown Pace, which is off their most recent album, 2021, Sympathy for Life. And then for Bell and Sebastian, we're going to play uh, their classic, like Dylan in the Movies, 
off of the If You're Feeling Sinister album. Then your cover's blown off the book CP. And finally, the song I said sounds just a new pornographer's being un- unnecessary drama. This is kissing man like a long walk home when the music stops. Take it to find me, talk it to the park when you're on your own. It's a long walk home. Well, if they follow you, don't look back like Dylan in the movies on your own. If they follow you. Not your money that they're after, boy, it's you. Pure easy listening, settle down on the pillow soft when they've all gone home. You
Transformative month in 
August 1993, what that month meant, how it impacted fish, what it says about them historically, how it's tied to who the band has been since then. Awesome, awesome month of fish. I, I will say it again. Listen to more August 93, guys. It's good for the soul. Um, we also do it. Our, do it. In our second segment, we asked what happens when a band reaches their August 1993 moment. And we talked about Bell and Sebastian who experienced this in the early 2000s and Parquet Courts who may be experiencing it right now. We don't know. Their, their story is yet to be told, but uh, we, we kind of discussed how certain bands do this and how bands can do this. Uh, this was a fun episode. Thank you guys. Absolutely. I enjoy recording this episode quite a bit. We'll uh, be back in September. Looking forward to that. I'm sure we'll uh, discuss some other things. We won't be discussing how the New York Mets season has gone down the toilet. <laughs> Hopefully we'll have much better things to say about the uh, surprising surge of the Chicago Cubs. Who would have thought that at the start of the year? That's right. Uh, Christopher Morrell, Javier Assad, Cody Bellinger, Dansby Swanson, Nico Horner, Ian Dansby. Happ. Dansby. Uh, this team, Dansby. Michael Fulmer. This team has captured my heart. Patrick Wisdom, I'm so glad he's experiencing this. This team has captured Wait. my heart, and I hope that you we see continue. Michael Fulmer? Michael Fulmer, our, uh, our setup he's man. He's in the Cubs? Yeah, he's, he's uh. throwing wiffle balls, man. It's been awesome. Um, Albert Adzelai. Ex-Met. Oh, man. We just... Well, no, not really. He. I don't think he threw a pitch for the Mets. He got... He was traded. He was sent over to Detroit in the Ones Cespedes trade, which I would have mm. done 800 times over. So that's okay. That was a good trade for you guys. What a, what a team. Yeah. Um, yeah, amazing Cubs season so far. Let's hope that it continues. And I will say, I'm, I'm really excited for our September episode. We are breaking a few rules. I'm not going to tell you what we're doing, but we're breaking a few rules and um, we're passing a few torches. We're very, very excited for this episode. We've been talking about it for months now behind the scenes, and uh, we're going to dive into it. It's going to be a ton of fun. Um, I will say as well, go ahead and send us an email to our mailbag at beyondthepondpodcast.gmail.com. We had a ton of fun going through our mailbag uh, this week. We've got a few more kicking around, but we would love to hear from you. Give us some fresh stuff. What are your thoughts on music 2023? What are your thoughts on fish 2023? Um what are your thoughts on baseball 2023? What are your thoughts on the EPL? Dave and I are big EPL fans now, and uh, we're, we're celebrating the mm. return of our gunners. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a fun time of year right now. Way too many sports for me to watch. But um, this was a good episode, and I cannot wait to be back here in a month. Come on, you gunners! Yeah, September episodes are going to be fun. Don't get your hopes up too high. It's not the 80s rush episode. That'll uh, happen at some point before, until one of us dies, there will be an 80s Rush episode. So, if you've been hanging with us at this point, thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed this episode. So come back in September. We'll hold hands. We'll say kumbaya. We'll root for the likes of Declan Rice and the Gunners of Arsenal. And we'll go beyond the pond.
Osiris.